patent model really is file early. If startups had their choice, they would develop something, commercialize it like crazy, see it's worth a fortune, then take a little bit of that and put it in the patent process. Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Patent process is really one that needs to be addressed very early on in order to keep that opportunity, window of opportunity open. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Mindset. I'm your host, Dan Henrich, and I'm Director of Marketing at SmithWise and Catapult Product Development. I'll get into that change a little later. But we have a great show for you today on an important topic to MedTech innovators, intellectual property. My guest is Greg Barnabeo. He's a patent attorney and partner at Fisher Broyles, a next-generation law firm. Greg has been a great resource as an attorney and advisor to SmithWise and to many of our clients. He sat down with me recently to talk about intellectual property issues in the medtech space. Let's listen in. Hey, Greg. Thanks so much for coming in today uh, to talk with us about IP and, and patent issues uh, regarding medtech. My pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, before we get started, maybe you can just tell us a bit about uh, you know, who you are, your background, your position, and, uh, and the firm that you work at. Sure. Be happy to do that. Uh, well, thanks for having me today. I'm glad to be here to talk to you about these, uh, these questions and issues today in intellectual property. It's where I spend my time. I'm a, an intellectual property attorney, a patent attorney uh, by trade. I've been practicing for over 20 years. I work as a partner at the law firm of Fisher Broyles, and uh, my core of my expertise is patent prosecution. I'm a mechanical engineer by training, um, but my technology span mechanical, electrical mechanical, computer hardware and software, and is a very good fit for a lot of what we see in the medical device space. Great, great. Well, um, we're so glad to have somebody who's, who has both an engineering background and, uh, and an IP background to, to talk with us about these things. So why don't we jump in here and just talk, start by talking a little bit about you know, what a patent is in, you know, in theory and in application. Um, I, think, I think people conventionally think of a patent as you know, a, um, a stamp of approval from the government to, uh, to commercialize a particular product or technology. Um, but it's not, that's not quite correct, right? So Not quite. <laughs> uh, tell us your take. What, is, what yeah. is a patent? So a patent is a grant from the government, of course, but it is, and they're territorial. So a U.S. patent has application in the United States. It gives you legal rights in the United States, specifically the right to exclude others from making, using, selling, offering for sale, the, or importing into the United States the patented product or making use of a patented process. So ultimately, it's a right to exclude others, not a right to practice. And I think in some ways, this is maybe the least intuitive part of patent law. But the idea is that you can have a, an improvement to something that is patent worthy, and yet someone may have a prior patent that's broad enough to keep you from practicing mm-hmm. your invention. And so there are slightly different analyses for determining whether what you have is patentable versus whether you have a right, as they might say, to practice it, mm-hmm. to use it. And what about the various types of patents? Like I, I, I hear, you know, this is a utility patent, this is a design patent, this is a provisional patent. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about you know, what, the, what the different aspects of it are? Sure, absolutely. So in this context, in the medical device field, we're really talking about two different types of patents, utility and design. So design covers the ornamental aspects of an article of manufacture. That's the language uh, in in our law. So the ornamental aspects are essentially how the product looks. 
Utility patent is really the other type of patent, the second type. Utility patent covers uh, not particularly the way something looks, but more so how it is structured or how it works or maybe a process and how the process um, is used. So uh, it's more about typically structure and functionality than appearance. And in a lot of ways, a utility patent can be much broader than a design patent. A provisional is a utility patent concept. A provisional is not, strictly speaking, a patent. It's a patent application. It's a first, road, first step down the road towards utility patent protection. Let me share that okay. trait. Gotcha. And what about, um, you know, what are the, what are the elements that I have to demonstrate, uh, in, in order for my, my, uh, application to be granted? Essentially that what you have is new, it's thinking of it at a, at, thinking about it at a very high level. Uh, but the, the legal tests are utility, novelty, and non-obviousness. So what does that mean? Well, there's a lot that we could probably talk about on that front, but it's probably enough to say for any kind of device product that has a physical structure, utility is very unlikely to be a bar that you can't overcome. And in the field of medical devices, I think you're a lot less likely to have the typical problem with respect to utility. You can almost put that off to the side. What you really need to be thinking about is novelty and non-obviousness. Novelty means your device is new. Nobody's done it before. Doesn't mean not on the market. It means nobody's done it before. From a, typically from a structural sense. And that means no one in the U.S., no one in the rest of the world. It's a global standard as to whether what your, your product is new, your invention is new. Non-obvious means maybe never, nobody's ever done it before, so maybe it's novel. But non-obvious means different enough from what someone has done before. So if what you've developed is new and different than what anyone has done before, but it's all such a minor and trivial variation that it's a mere obvious variation of what has gone before. Patent law is not going to give you a patent, but if you've made enough of a step away from what's already been done before, then you can demonstrate that your development is not only novel, but also non-obvious and that you're entitled to a patent. Okay. And um, what about what, you know, what is and isn't patentable? Um, for instance, if, I, you know, if I'm a surgeon and I, I invent a new surgical technique that no one you know, it has used before. Can I protect that, you know, for my institution, um, well, that, over my practice? Yeah, that's a good question. I think sometimes you, you see different answers to this question, but, um, my answer to this question is yes, those techniques are patentable. A surgical technique or a method of treatment type of claim is generally speaking patentable. Generally, they're not enforceable in the U.S. against a surgeon, so in, or excuse me, a, a doctor. So usually, you find that those claims are somewhat disfavored because the thinking is, well, we're not going to be able to enforce this method claim against the person who's going to be carrying out the method, the person who's providing the treatment. But the, uh, the truth of the matter is, elsewhere in the world, um, methods of treatment are in some ways a little bit more patentable. And even here in the U.S., there are reasons to have those claims. And one of the reasons is that a medical device manufacturer may be pursued because they're contributing to or inducing infringement of the method claim by providing a device that can be used in the infringing method. Okay. Can you maybe just take us quickly through you know, the typical patent process? You know, there's a lot of terms that, that we hear, uh, you know, freedom to operate, prior art. Um, patent prosecution, 
you know, request for continued examination, patent maintenance. Can you just take us through the process and explain where the main, you know, terms come into play? Sure, absolutely. So uh, the way I put those terms together is that you might normally start with a freedom to operate search or study or a non-infringement study. And what this generally means is non-infringement, typically you know of a patent and you want to determine if I make the product I intend to make, am I going to infringe this patent? And you hopefully can come to a non-infringement conclusion. That might be one of your earliest steps. Freedom to operate search is generally a little bit of a broader term, meaning you're looking at the field of patents more broadly and you're trying to determine whether there are any patents out there that might be problematic for you. And when you find one, you might do an infringement analysis and hopefully come to a non-infringement conclusion. So those terms are about understanding the rights of others before you move forward with your own rights or your own product. When you want, and when you're looking at those patents that already exist before you came along, you're looking at the prior art. That's the term we, that's the term we use, the prior art. You might say the state of the art. You're, look, you're looking to a body of knowledge that predates you, and it's against the prior art that the novelty and non-obviousness of your invention will be determined. So you're going to compare what you've developed to the prior art. When you start your own process, you're trying to advance the ball with your own intellectual property rights. Your step, your first, one of your first steps might be a patentability study. So you might go out, look at those patents and determine, regardless of whether you may infringe them and there's freedom to operate, you might look at whether what you have is different enough that you're entitled to your own patent, determine whether what you have is patentable. Um, then you may file an application, and that's where the patent prosecution process really begins. So patent prosecution is a little bit of an unfamiliar term, uh, prosecution used in an unconventional sense for, for most people. But what it really means is the process of applying for the patent and the back-and-forth communication with the patent office where you might say you're sort of negotiating the scope of your rights under the eventual patent. Uh, and so that starts with a patent application or a patent filing. And during the patent prosecution process, typically the patent office makes rejections and the attorney and patent applicant make responses to overcome those rejections. And if you're successful at the end, you get a notice of allowance, which means the claims you've negotiated that define the scope of your rights have been approved and your patent is going to issue. And so when your patent issues, you get an actual physical hard copy with a nice seal on it, mm -hmm. and that is the paper documentation of your patent rights, and it's an issued patent. Um, along the way, you might have to go through multiple rounds of patent prosecution, and you only get so many for your filing fee. And so they might at some point say, we've given you as much review as you're entitled to for your filing fee, and you might have to request continued examination, which is more about the fee for continuing prosecution than it is about uh, the request. <laughs> so you pay the, pay the patent office to keep going. You get to your notice of allowance, your patent issues, and post-issuance, uh, after the patent has issued, you have to pay maintenance fees in the U.S. to keep it in force. And those are due in the U.S. basically every four years after patent issuance. And uh, the typical term for a, for a utility patent is 20 years, is that correct? It is 20 years, and it's under the newer laws. It used to be 17 years, but under the newer laws, it's 20 years. But those 20 years are no longer measured from issuance. They're 20 years measured from filing. Okay. But there are, there are actually uh, term extensions that are available for, for various reasons. Okay. A question that, that came up as we were, we were thinking through, you know, what, what's particular to, to MedTech uh, about, about this conversation we're having? You know, you're going through this patent prosecution process with the, the USPTO, the, mm -hmm. the Patent and Trademark Office, um, and 
you're trying to convince them of the, the novelty of your idea. But many of the, of the clients that we're dealing with, and I'm guessing many of the clients you're, you're dealing with, are, um, are going to take a 510K um, approval pathway through the FDA. Mm-hmm. And to do that, they have to then turn around and convince a separate federal agency that basically they're, what they're doing is not new, that it's, that it's, uh, it's safety and efficacy you know how it essentially how it works is is the same as a product that's that's already on the market or maybe a host of other products and they're going to cite that as a predicate do those do those um, claims ever come into to conflict in your world mm-hmm. well i guess i should start by saying i'm a patent attorney and not an fda regulatory attorney and so there may be fda regulatory attorneys that are closer to that issue than i am um, but i would say i haven't seen that problem and i think what the what the uh, best answer to that question is, is that the purpose and focus and meaning of same as the predicate device for safety and efficacy is really a different analysis than what we're talking about when we're talking about novelty in the, in the patent context. So I think the FDA is really more focused on the impact to the patient and very often in the patent process, we're not nearly focus as much on impact on the patient as we are on things like structural differences. So I think the structure could be different and the impact to the patient could still be the same. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of how, how your patent um, informs your, you know, the rest of your, your business strategy. So if your patent is pending, you've, you've, you uh, have filed the application, what protections do you have for your IP? I mean, is it kind of... Is it done at that point? Um, do you have to be worried about um, you know your intellectual property if you know you've got a good solid application that's mm-hmm. that's be currently being prosecuted? Mm-hmm. So, uh, a couple of answers to that question. Uh, filing an application is an important step for any patent application is important for any inventor. It's an important step because it can prevent the loss of your patent opportunity or the loss of your patent rights because you have only a limited window of opportunity in which to pursue patent protection. When you have something that's new, it's not new forever. And ultimately, if you sit on that, too lo- sit on that development too long, your own work can be mm-hmm. used against mm-hmm. you in determining whether what you have is new in certain circumstances. So filing an application is important because um, then you are more free to go and talk to those potential commercialization partners because you've captured your IP in an application. At the same time, you're not done, <laughs> definitely. You're at, the, you're at the first step along the path towards an issued patent to having filed your application. And um, you have not yet enforceable rights. You have inchoate rights. You have rights that are not yet mature. So you've captured your intellectual property, which is important because then you can more freely go out and talk to these commercialization partners without losing your patent opportunity. Um, but you don't have something that you can use at that moment to stop someone else from making or using your, your development. So you need to advance the application through the issuance to have that enforceable right where you could actually sue someone and get a, you know, get a judgment that would preclude mm-hmm. them from that would pay you royalties or an injunction that would preclude them from practicing. Mm -hmm. So still then probably very important um, if you're having, you know, conversations in any detail with, you know, commercialization partners, potential investors or vendors that you have a non-disclosure agreement in place um, prior to getting into any, any confidential details. Is that correct? Absolutely. That's getting a, getting a non-disclosure agreement in place is important for a couple of reasons. 
it's not a substitution in any way for your patent rights, but it complements them. And so by proceeding in a way such that you have a confidentiality agreement in place first, it supports your efforts in not disclosing your invention before you've filed your patent application or even afterwards. And it also creates an immediate contractual obligation on the other party that you can hold them responsible to in terms of not using or commercializing or disclosing your technology. And uh, that's great because it's an immediate contractual obligation when you do not yet have IP rights that you can use because you don't yet have an issued patent. So it can provide you some measure of protection of a certain sort before you have patent right type protection. A lot of our clients come from academic backgrounds that might be part of a large research hospital uh, or, or you know a university health system and in, in those academic environments there's a there is uh, you know a lot of your progress uh, is is measured by how much you publish so you know publishing there's an emphasis on publishing research um, but if that's research that you're hoping to commercialize uh, you know does that ever come into come into conflict, and and how should you try and you know negotiate that in terms of making sure that your IP is protected? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is you know definitely something that comes up quite often because there is pressure to publish and get it out in the hands of the public as soon as possible. That objective works in a lot of ways contrary to the objective of the patent applicant, which is really keep it secret until you've filed a patent application. Mm-hmm. So really, what you need to do, or we do as attorneys working with. Um, our, inventor, our inventors, uh, who are sometimes faculty, uh, we make sure that they understand that we can work best together when we coordinate our efforts. Yeah. And there is, a, there is a way to play the game such that they can go ahead and publish and you can still file patent application, at least in the U.S., but you might trade all of your international rights for that publication. You'll lose those international patent opportunities. Um, and there, and you know, the, the best answer to that question is, you know, why don't we work together from the earliest point so that we can get a patent application on file for you before you file a publication, before you publish a publication that might work against you? And not every publication necessarily does. But when the applicants or the, pro- the professors or inventors are doing their job as well as they can and we're doing our job as well as we can, we're working hand in hand so we understand what's going to be published and when so we can build an IP strategy around that. My view is always that IP, IP plays a supporting role for the business or the university or the applicants. And so we have to find a way to conduct ourselves that fits with the objectives, not to reshape the business processes so that it's convenient for the IP process. So we play a supporting role and we try to tailor how we do and when we do what we do uh, so that it supports what people want to do mm-hmm. anyway. But we can only do that when we're working together really from the early stages. Okay. So what about the flip side of the equation where um, maybe an inventor is, is you know, in a different environment where they know that there are competitors working to solve the same problem and they don't want to they don't want to tip their hand by filing a patent application, which will become public, right? Um, They don't want to let their competitors know the approach that they're taking to the problem. Mm -hmm. Does it ever make sense to hold off on filing? Yes, it can. It can make sense to hold off a bit, but uh, it's very dangerous with respect to your patent opportunity, especially under the newer and relatively recent in the timeline of the patent system laws that are first to file laws. Because if your if your com- competitor publishes before you file, 
you're, you're out of luck, really. Your patent opportunity evaporates. The other part of the, my answer to your question is that um, when you file, your application will not necessarily be published, and it certainly won't be published immediately. So in the normal course of events, you file a provisional or a non-provisional application, and the first publication is 18 months later. So you've got at least 18 months, even if you're going the, the route of making it available through the patent process as soon as possible. In this quick break, I usually tell you that MedTech Mindset is a production of SmithWise. But I have some exciting news to share with our audience this show. We've joined teams with our friends at Catapult Product Development. Catapult shares our SmithWise mission of advancing healthcare through the development of breakthrough medical technologies. And with the merger of our two firms, we're able to expand the scope of services and depth of expertise we offer to the medtech industry. We'll be announcing a new name for our joint entity soon, so stay tuned. You can learn more about the merger on our blog, medtechmindset.com. That all makes sense, but uh, for a startup company, almost every one of them is running on, on you know, limited cash. They have, a, they have a limited runway, and they cannot, in most cases, afford to litigate against a competitor who's infringing on their, on their patent rights, especially if it's a large competitor with deep pockets. So in that case, you know, I guess my, my question is, what's the real value of a patent um, if you're in that environment where you might, you, know, you might go through the patent application process and, and pay your fees and pay your attorney, and at the end of the day, you have a patent, but you can't afford to defend it? Again, a few answers to that question. So when you file your patent application, you're not going to have a patent immediately. So you're not going to be suing immediately, but you have to capture your rights immediately because, or almost immediately because that's the way the patent system works. There's only so much you can do and keep your patent opportunity before you file a patent application. So the patent model really is file early. If startups had their choice, they would develop something, commercialize like crazy, see it's worth a fortune, then take a little bit of that and put it in right. the patent process. Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. And the reason for that is the objective in our Constitution is to essentially accelerate the progress of science. So the model is come up with something, just put it in the hands of the scientific community, essentially, as soon as possible so that the scientific community can learn from it and, and grow. So that's, that's the reason why you can't just you know, sit on it, part of the reason why you can't just sit on it and then come back and do the patent process later. Patent process is really one that needs to be addressed very early on in order to keep that opportunity window of opportunity open. Um, part of my answer is that there, you can do something short of litigating. You can... Um, well, even before I give you that part, you can find litigation finance companies, frankly, that if you have a good, you have a good position, you can find litigation finance companies that have business models of even particularly in the IP space, financing litigation and taking a piece mm -hmm. of the recovery. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why even if you don't have all the money in your pocket, it may still make sense. You can also do something short of litigation, something something can be resolved by a demand demand letter, and you certainly don't need the same budget you need for litigation mm -hmm. to do that. Like a cease and, and desist letter. Like a cease and desist letter, exactly. And uh, there can be some pretty stiff penalties for a competitor that knows that they're violating your patent and continuing to do so, and that puts pressure on settlement even when you're in the demand letter context. Now, you may have to go further to get there, but still there are, there are uh, reasons that someone who receives a demand letter may want to pay some close attention, particularly if they're a big player. Um, another reason is that uh, you're, if you don't pursue those rights early on, that window of opportunity closes and it's lost forever. Mm -hmm. And another reason is that uh, 
you can, by capturing that IP and establishing even an inchoate right, even, even you don't have an issue patent yet, you have an application, that has value. And so you can attract partners, commercialization partners, potential licensees. You can leverage or sell the patent application, at least procedurally. And um, it has value as of the time it's captured. And the one that maybe comes into play most often is that it's part of a portfolio uh, uh, or part of a package that is a startup's value, really. It's part of a startup and it can be used to attract capital into the startup. Um, and oftentimes that is a motivator for a startup to want to you know, capture their own IP. And um, it may be that an investment in IP, handling it in a, you know, a diligent and thoughtful way and demonstrating that the, that the startup has the wherewithal to execute in development and documentation and the patent process is a little bit confidence-inspiring that you know, there will be further innovation. And even if you know, the first one isn't fully funded, there's, there's something there. And a lot of times, IP does take somewhat of a, a meandering, or maybe it's better to say an iterative path, and so mm-hmm. that there are not, not only a development, but there are also follow-on developments that can be mm-hmm. captured. So all of that weighs in favor of you know, capturing what you have. You have to do it in a thoughtful and strategically meaningful way um, but I think the decision process is really not if I don't have an, you know, enough millions of dollars to, mm-hmm. to litigate, then I, then I shouldn't file because there are a lot of other paths that don't lead directly to litigation. Mm-hmm. You, uh, as someone who, who advises startups uh, in terms of their, of their IP strategy, uh, do you ever you know, take that iterative approach to say, okay, well, this is what you need to demonstrate is patentable for you know, your next round of funding Let's worry about claims, you know, two through ten, uh, you know, farther down the road after you after you uh, have more capital. Yes, essentially, yes. I mean, there are a couple of ways to do that. W- one of the ways may be to file on a first application that has a scope that you're able to pursue now, even if you have to put some stuff on the back burner. Putting it on the back burner does have some risks. You can also file. A broader application with the intention that it may be bro- it may be broader than what you can handle in a single application, but at least you've captured it and you can sort of put it on the back back burner. Meaning you can divide the application essentially into parts and pursue one part now and the rest of the parts later. And yet, by making your filing, you've established an early priority date. You've, you've captured it and essentially gotten in place, gotten a place in line at the patent office mm-hmm. uh, or in the state of the art uh, so that you can come back and pick it up later. So there are a couple of different ways that, that you can play that game so that you may have IP but limited resources and there are ways to you know, plan for taking off a comfortably sized chunk and dealing with it sooner. Let's keep with that uh, with that idea of a, a med tech startup that's you know has a has a, a limited amount of cash they're looking to to stay lean um are there steps that that someone especially who's someone who's technically inclined like an engineer inventor or something like that are there steps that those folks can take ahead of attorney uh or, or a firm to prosecute their patent application what, what can what can folks do to try to um you know, be in the best position they can when it's time to, to bring on, you know, mm-hmm. someone like yourself. One of the best things you can likely do for yourself is make sure that you have a clear articulation of the development. And so have before you see an attorney, that will allow things to proceed much more efficiently. And so if you can prepare some text or description or even PowerPoint slides and drawings, I mean, that would be fantastic. Even hand sketches 
can be very useful. Um, but what you what typically is most helpful is a careful consideration of what the development is, why it's being developed, and how it works in a, in a way that communicates it well in documentation. That usually works best. You don't have to have it, but if you want to promote efficiency, that probably helps. And the exercise of preparing those documents on the inventor's part uh, is worth something in and of itself mm -hmm. <laughs> in that it forces them to think carefully about what do I have, why do I think it's novel, uh, even in the absence of the prior art, that can be very useful. Doing their own search can also be useful. Um, that said, everything you find and touch you need to keep track of because in the application process, we'll need to disclose things that are relevant to the determination of whether or not what you have is new. And so the inventor will have an obligation, the attorney will have an obligation. And so a reasonably focused search can be helpful. Even better would be a patent attorney's patentability search. And the reason for that is poking around on Google patents and doing word searches or poking around on the patent office website and doing web, uh, web searches is not the same way that a patent attorney would typically search uh, for, for a patentability search. We focus using a subject matter-based and indexed classification system that mm -hmm. categorizes subject matter um, in, in a way that is really independent or not so dependent of any particular word. So doing a word search is different than a classified subject matter search. So we, can tend, to get, we tend to get better results. But doing some searching on the inventor's part, I think, is a valuable step. And preparing drawings, I would say, yes, that's worthwhile. Although um, I think what should be kept in mind is that very often uh, those drawings will not ultimately be used in at least a formal patent application. They may be used in a provisional, but in a formal patent application, there are um, strict and varied uh, drawing requirements that the patent office has. So it's very unlikely that a lay person is going to produce drawings that are going to comply with the way the patent office wants to see it. But in terms of communicating it to the, to the patent attorney, that could be very, very effective. And they're often sufficient. Um, they're often sufficient for at least a provisional application where those drawing rules are not applied um, in the same way. You alluded to something earlier about, you know, um the change, I believe it's the American Invents Act, is that right? That, that change from a first to, uh, first to invent to a first to file system? Yes, that's right. Um, so in light, of, in light of that change, how important are, um, you know, keeping good records, lab notebooks, you know, documenting, uh, you know, the timeline of your development and all that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. So the reason... I think you're asking that question is the the role of lab notebooks has changed somewhat with the coming of the America Invents Act, which did change us to a first-to-file system. So the America Invents Act, America Invents Act has to some extent, to some extent created a race to the patent office in a way that it didn't really exist before. Because under the old system, the first-to-invent system, someone who filed later would not necessarily be a problem for you as the applicant if you were the first to invent because the determinations were made by who was first to invent. Now the system doesn't work that way anymore. It's first to file. It's first inventor to file is really what it is. But someone else can pose a problem for you in terms of getting your own patent rights if you are not the first to file. So lab notebooks used to be used or the importance of lab notebooks in the patent prosecution process used to be 
use them to show that you were first to invent. So for a newly filed application, you're not going to use a lab notebook to do that anymore because it's not, it's not relevant in the way it was in the past. That said, lab notebooks are still important and they've always been used for purposes other than preparing a declaration to show that you were first to invent as part of a patent prosecution process. Um, it can be used for fundamental documentation to show that you are in fact an inventor. Uh, it can be used maybe to document something that ultimately is treated as a trade secret. Um, it could be used for a number of different purposes. The, the other thing that it's more likely to be used for under the American Vents Act is to show that something is your own work and not a derivation, that's not derived from somebody else, which is a concept that's really um, more central to the American Vents Act. Uh, it's a newer concept. So I would say that the answer to that question is they're still very important. There's no reason to discontinue any keeping of lab notebooks. In the patent prosecution process, they won't be used in the same way that they've always been used, but they should still be kept. Who needs to be listed on the application as an inventor? And is there a distinction between inventorship and ownership, mm -hmm. uh, even if you're going to sign the IP rights over? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. This, this fundamental question of who's an, in, who's an inventor comes up in a lot of different contexts, and it comes up pretty often. Uh, absolutely, inventorship and ownership are two entirely... Well, they're two separate concepts, certainly. And the question of who is an inventor is a, it's really a, it's really a fact question. I mean, it's, it's governed by certain legal principles, but the question when you're thinking about inventorship is, who are those people who actually conceived of the invention? Who, who created it? Without regard to, are they in my company or somebody else's company? It's just, the inquiry is just, who, who contributed? Who contributed to the creation? Ownership is handled separately from inventorship. Ownership may be governed by contract or by whim. <laughs> you may choose to assign it to someone without an obligation. And uh, typically, when, uh, typically when a party like a Smithwise is engaged to contract with, uh, with inventors to do some development work, in my experience, it's not uncommon that there will be ownership provisions in there sometimes. It, ownership provisions in there. And sometimes it will provide that ownership will be in the hiring party. And so... Uh, ownership would be handled by an assignment document where the actual inventors sign a document saying, I'm transferring my rights over to a company. And very, very often, they're two entirely separate issues. You absolutely need to get the, to not allow ownership to interfere with the inventorship determination. Identifying the inventors properly is very important for the integrity of the patent. And, and, and with under certain circumstances, when you've improperly named the inventors, uh, it can be grounds for, for holding the patent unenforceable. It can be invalid, essentially. All right. Well, I think we're, we're, we're coming maybe to the, to the end of our, our allotted time, but uh, I know one thing that I want to make sure we, we cover is, you know, if you had advice to give, you know, a, an, an inventor um, who knows that they need, they need IP help, um, how would you advise them to go about finding uh, you know, finding a firm or finding an attorney or an agent to, to assist them with their application. What should be their criteria and what should their process look like from your perspective? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's definitely important to shop around um, because not all attorneys or all firms are equal. Uh, you need to find someone that you're certainly that you're comfortable with. Uh, I think what you should be shopping for is um, someone who has, I'll say, the right experience, but what does that mean, right? I mean, there are, there are 
certainly going to be good patent attorneys at firms of all different types, small, medium, large. Uh, but what I think you're looking for when you're looking for a patent attorney in this space is someone with the right technical background. So if you've, you know, if you've developed uh, if you've developed something that's a chemical development, you're going to want a, a patent attorney with a chemistry background because they're going to best understand what your development is and how to present it. If you develop something that's more electrical, maybe you need an electrical engineer. Maybe software, you want someone who's familiar with software. If it's mechanical, you want a mechanical engineer. Um, although many of us, because the projects are so intertwined with mechanical, electrical, and software aspects, um, you find that we practice in really across all those fields. But fundamentally, you're looking for a good technical match between your patent attorney and what you've developed. So you wouldn't want a, a biotech patent attorney. You'd really want an engineer who's familiar with the issues if you have engineering in your, in your device. So that's a, one of the first things I'd look for. Another thing I'd look for is um, experience in the med tech space. I think that's also very important. Um, Perhaps, perhaps secondary to making sure you find the right technical match, uh, but can be very important in ways that go beyond just the pure patent prosecution process. You also want to think about you know, the, the firm and how the, the services will be delivered. Make sure that you have a good fit there as well. When, do you, when would you say is the right time to involve a, a, a patent attorney or, or an IP firm for the first time? You know, is it is it when you have a napkin sketch? Should you have a functional prototype? You know, when should you go have that first consultation meeting with, with a patent attorney? Mm -hmm. I think it's never too soon to have that initial consultation. I mean, I know that I'm always happy to talk to inventors or companies, startups, even before they're really ready to engage me. Uh, and the reason for that is, as we mentioned earlier, there's a limited window of opportunity to pursue patent protection. Typically in that first meeting, we're thinking about have any activities already taken place that could compromise patent rights? If so, when did they happen? What's a critical date that we need to monitor? Or if, that ha if something hasn't already occurred, we're at least having a conversation about the fact that there is a limited window of opportunity and making sure that they understand what they should be keeping their eye on in terms of activities so that they can proceed in a cautious and thoughtful way that will preserve their rights and meet their goals. And so I think it's never too early to have that initial consultation. And sometimes I find that I have an initial consultation, I get the client oriented in terms of thinking about you know, what they should keep their eye on to preserve their IP rights. But I tell them, you know, you're, you're probably not going to need me until you get a little bit further along in articulating your, your ideas. You don't need to engage me. You don't need to hire me uh, until we get a little bit further along. Sometimes, if I feel that way, I certainly, certainly say it. But I think from the, uh, from the client's perspective or from the med tech company's perspective, med device company's perspective, it's never too early to have that conversation because time ultimately is working against you. And you'd, you'd hate to find that you just missed your window of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Rather, know about it, and then you can decide whether to take advantage of it or not, but at least you can do it knowingly, so it's never too soon. Sure, and uh, it seems like that would, you know, that initial conversation would be pretty important for a company that's just starting to put together, you know, what is their IP strategy and how does it tie in, you know, when they're presenting to investors, um, they would probably want to be able to say, you know, we've had preliminary conversations this is our plan for when we're going to file a patent if we haven't already. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That can be very uh, confidence-inspiring, and it demonstrates IP savvy. And uh, I think it's only you know it can only be well received. And and personally, I'm always happy to have that initial consultation at no charge. Great, great. Well, we'll make sure to post um, your contact information on the blog when we when we uh, put this episode up. So great, great. Love, I so love talking really about these. Appreciate. Thank uh, you. I love talking the about these yeah. topics. All right.
Thanks. Thank you. And that's our show for today. If you liked it, please let us know by visiting medtechmindset.com and clicking the Contact Us button. If you didn't, we want to know that too and how we can do better. MedTech Mindset is a production of Smithwise and Catapult, stay tuned for our new name, and is produced in our Philadelphia office. Our theme music is composed, performed, and personally curated by the Polish Ambassador. Thanks again to Greg Barnabeo of Fisher Broyles for being our guest today, and thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time on MedTech Mindset.